Lord, I thank you for this time this morning we have to spend in your word. You would teach us what you want us to know. And Lord, help us to uh, keep our eyes focused on you, Lord. No matter what's happening in the world around us, uh, Lord, we have our faith in you, who is our rock. And Lord, again, as Steve prayed for the mission teams we have out, as they are reaching to the uttermost parts of the earth, and uh, even locally in our own country, Lord, pray that you'd continue to help them minister to those who are in need, and uh, may those people see the light uh, in those disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm still getting over a cold. Uh, Zechariah, so it's been a couple months, I think, since I was here, so let me do a little bit of a review. Zechariah is written in a time after the return of the captives from Babylon. They had been there for 70 years. And under the direction of Cyrus, great king of Persia, uh, he told them to return to their homeland and to go ahead and rebuild their temple. There were 50,000 Jews who returned under the direction of Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Jerusalem. During their time there in rebuilding the temple, At the beginning, they had problems with the Samaritans, who were a mixed breed of Jews and people that the Assyrians had brought in. Uh, During this time of the uh, problem with the Samaritans, the work stopped. Because the work stopped, they were having problems with drought and crop failure, and all these things were happening. Now, because of this, 15 years after that, Haggai comes on the scene and says, look, all these things are happening to you guys because you weren't obedient. God has commanded you to build the temple, but you're not doing it. You've given up. He said, but God wants you to do it again. God wants you to restart the work. So 23 days after his first prophetic word, Haggai's first prophetic word, the work on the temple begins. Now, Zechariah comes in two months after this. The people they had begun working on the temple. But it was their head working on the temple. Their heart was not truly in it yet as a people. So God didn't just want them to rebuild the temple. He wanted to rebuild their relationship with him. So chapter 1, God wants their hearts to get right. So they can again, again, they can begin again, not just with the temple, but with their relationship with him. (coughs) Excuse me. Chapter 2, he wants them to know that he's got everything under control. He doesn't want them to worry about the other nations. He wants them to realize that all the nations that have been brought up around Israel and Judah, they were there to serve God's purpose. They may have enslaved Israel. They may have attacked Israel. There were a lot of bad things that were done. But God says, look, You brought it on yourself, but I'm still here. I still love you. I've got everything under control. You're not going to be wiped out. You're not going to be removed from being his people. Not from the land, obviously. They got removed from that. Then he doesn't want them at the end of chapter 2 to worry about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if you remember from before, it's basically a dump. It's a heap of rubble. It's a heap of just rocks all over the place. The walls have been torn down. The temple's been ripped apart. The treasury of the temple was taken to Babylon. 
But God has a vision in, for Zechariah where someone is measuring the temple. He's measuring Jerusalem. And the people are like, well, why are you doing that? And he says, well, it may not seem like it now because there's only a, a few captives who actually live in the city. But Jerusalem's going to be so filled with people that I need to measure it to plan for them. <coughs> Chapter 3, Joshua the high priest is a picture of the nation. And Satan is accusing the nation of Israel. But God is reminding them that though they were a brand left in the fire, which would be a, you know, a broken stick that's smoldering in the fire, God says, I have pulled you out. You belong to me. I've made you my own. Not because they were deserving and not because Satan's accusations against them weren't true. They were absolutely true. But it's because God was going to cleanse them and robe them. Now, chapter 4, we learn that everything they do, it's not by their human strength. It's not by their ingenuity. It's not by anything they think they can accomplish with any cleverness of their own. But it's by his spirit. And that was also a reminder for us that Everything that God has us in our life to do, it's not our own cleverness. It's his spirit that works through us that accomplishes those things. Now, chapter 5, we have two visions. The first is of a flying scroll, and it is there to tell us that there's a future time where God is going to judge Israel according to his law. <coughs> the second vision, which may or may not be related, is of a woman in a basket with a lid of lead. This basket is eventually carried for a place that's prepared for it in the city of Babylon. And it appears that because of the language that's used, which is ephah in a basket and the talent of the lid, it represents commercialism and materialism, which happened to be a distraction for Israel when they were in Babylon. No longer after they were pulled from their land did they ever have an issue with the balls with the Ashtoreths or any of the other false gods they made with their hands. But materialism and commercialism, many of them started their own businesses there, became their sole focus. Now, chapter 6 is a vision of four horses going out into different directions of the world, with the gist of this vision being that God is going to judge the Gentile nations for their sins, specifically Babylon, the land of the north. <coughs> Uh, and by the time of this prophecy, Babylon had itself been judged, but this also looks forward to the judgment of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. Now, the second half of chapter 6, more of the exciting part, is the prophecy of the branch. This is the second time the branch is mentioned, and the branch is the Messiah. So four men came from Babylon with silver and gold. They fashioned it into a crown, and they put it symbolically on the head of Joshua. This is significant because a priest could not be a king and a king could not be a priest. Yet it was symbolic because those are exactly two of the things which Messiah was going to encompass when he came. He was going to be a king and a priest. His third role, of course, was also as Messiah or also a prophet. Now, chapter seven takes place two years after chapter six, and the subject is it of it is tradition and how they were caught in a tradition. They had this tradition where they were celebrating four different fasts um, because of what had happened. One was the destruction of Jerusalem. So they had all these fasts that they had kept keeping through the 70 years of exile. And they kept keeping them into the building of the temple. So they came to Zechariah and said, should we still do this? 
And God says, look, I don't care about your fasts. I, again, as he always says in scripture, I only care about your heart. I only care about the relationship that I want with you. Now, as we begin chapter eight, pay attention to the phrase. This is what the Lord almighty says. It is used nine times in this chapter. It says this same phrase seven other times in this book, but nine out of the 16 times are in this chapter. And this specific phrase is only used 43 times in the entire Bible. There are other phrases like thus says the Lord and things like that, but this specific phrase is only 43 times. But a third of the time it's used in the Bible is in this book, and over half of those are in this chapter. Haggai, who also ministered during this period, used that phrase five times in his two-chapter book. Now, it describes, uh, as I mentioned in chapter one, that sovereignty of God, it describes the sovereignty of God over control of situations in history. The Lord is going to show Israel the future, and he's going to show his promises toward them. So from chapter 8 through the end of the book, it's all future, it's all things that are going to happen, and he's going to have snippets of his promises thrown in there of why he's doing these things um, and so forth like that. And the important thing to remember is I can come up here and explain the Bible to you every week, every day. Pastor Bill can, any Bible teacher can, but... Our faith and our hope is not built on what I explained to you, because you can get that in your head. But the Bible is full of the promises of God. God's people don't live on the explanations. They live on God's promises, on focusing on what God has promised for us. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. (coughs) So remember, because of their disobedience and God promised to them many times in the prophets, he also promised it to them in the Pentateuch, the first five books, that if they fell away, they walked away, they would become a byword or a curse. So that every time someone thought of the Jews of Jerusalem, they'd think of, oh, the Jews, you know, that fallen people. They, they weren't thought of in a positive manner. But God's telling them, look, this is how you were in the past when you walked away. This is how you're looked at now. But it's not going to be that way always. So you can take strength that in the future, you're not going to be a byword. You're going to be a people that is looked up to. And that is what he's telling them and encouraging with, encouraging them with here. <clears throat> In verse 4 and 5 it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once men, once again men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This implies safety and security. And with the city as it was in a state of destruction, the walls were still down, so there was no safety, there was no security. It's a dangerous place. However, when Messiah reigns, it's going to be safe and prosperous. And you can kind of apply this to us today. You know, 
When I was growing up, my parents basically said, go outside and play. When the light comes on at night, come back in. And that was all they did. They, didn't, they may come out every once in a while to check, but very rarely. Um, I would not ever do that for my kids nowadays. I don't trust the state of the world today. But in the future, they're going to be able to do that. <coughs> Verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord? So he wants to get a matter of perspective. This seems marvelous or extreme in the eyes of man. We look at something like that, and they can look at the people who are being ministered to in Texas. Through all the hurricanes that happened, all the destruction, they look at it around them and they go, ah, this is terrible. You know, is this ever going to end? You know, look at all the devastation, all the rebuilding that we have to do. But we're sending teams over there. And through the spirit, they're helping the people and they're ministering to them. But the devastation, people can look at those teams and going, you know what? The outlook looked bleak. Look at all these people that are coming to help. And a lot of people will realize through the help of the ministries that not just our church, but others send that, you know what? God has hope. It's not about the physical destruction that's around us. And that stuff's going to happen, but it's the hope that Jesus offers. And they're going to get that through that, uh, through the misery that they're uh, experiencing through the natural disasters. <coughs> In this chapter, it opens with a glimpse of what the millennial kingdom is going to look like. And God is asking them this rhetorical question. Do they think it's too difficult for him to accomplish? And when we experience something in our life that looks bleak, do we think this is too difficult to accomplish? Or do we look at God and say, well, it's not too difficult for you. It is too difficult for me. And that's what God wants him to say. Look, it's not just here in this chapter, but everything through the entire book that he's going to show them. This is not impossible for me. He is an omnipotent God, all powerful. He's all knowing. He can accomplish anything. So the more he shows them, and this is the first glimpse, and we'll get to later chapters, but the first glimpse of what he's going to do. (coughs) He wants them to set their sights on his strength, not theirs, on his plans for the future and not their current circumstances. And again, it's easy to to get bogged down. It's also hard uh, something comes suddenly and we don't understand the purpose. Uh, Not last week, but the week before. uh, I was on uh, vacation. I didn't go anywhere. But when I was gone, one of my friends and supervisors at work, he died. He went home uh, after having a headache went to the doctor and they sent him home with medication because they thought it was a migraine. I think the next day he went back in again and they rushed him to emergency surgery. He had had an aneurysm and he survived the surgery, which they weren't expecting, but he died a few days later. And I didn't know this. I was gone on, was gone. I had no idea that it had happened. I discovered it on Facebook and I was shocked. And I'm not sure if he was a Christian or not. Um, 
he was honestly one of the nice, if he wasn't a Christian, he is the absolute nicest guy I've ever met who was not a Christian. Uh, he was familiar with, <coughs> excuse me, the faith though, because I had spoken of it before. But there are things like that that can happen. And I tell you, I, you know, I was kind of shaken because I, you know, I don't, you know, that I always hear of it happening to other people. Um, not someone I'd worked with because, you know, a lot of times you're at work, you spend more time with the people at work sometimes than you do with your family. And so I've been with a lot of these people at work for 14 years now. Him, I've been with for three years. But a lot of these people I would consider a second family. And as a, they're a second family, an opportunity I have to witness to a lot of the times because most of them aren't Christians. So it was kind of, <clears throat> it had kind of shaken me. But I don't know what God is going to use this for. And another Christian and I I work with, we're talking about it yesterday, you know, it's devastating. It was devastating to everybody at the warehouse because he was an absolute positive guy. He always looked at the bright side of the situation. He was more positive than I was. And everybody knows that I'm a Christian. I'd look at the situation and go, oh, well. He'd go, you know what, team, we can do it. We can, and he would get everybody together. I mean, honestly, I don't know what God's going to do in this situation, but I'm praying for it, and you can be praying for it as well. Um, because me and the other Christians at work have been praying about it and to see what God's going to use the situation for. And I'm sure it's a good thing. <coughs> anyway. It's always possible with God. We need to make sure our strength is in his, on him and not in us. Verse 7 and 8. <coughs> this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people. From the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people. And I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is another promise of God to gather his people. And you're going to find this dozens of places throughout the Old Testament. But again, it's one of those promises that he keeps bringing up. They're going to be like, well, you still haven't gathered us. We've gathered some of us from Babylon. But overall, it hasn't happened yet. Again, this is God encouraging them. Look. The Lord Almighty says, I am sovereign. I have it under control. It hasn't happened yet. It's not my timing yet, but it's going to happen. <coughs> Verse 9 and 10. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safety because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. Verses 9 through 13 is bookended with the phrase, let your hands be strong. You've got to remember, again, the foundation set 15 years before. They faced... Lack, which is, they had no wages. They were just there. They were being obedient, but they had no wages to do it. They faced opposition. They had no peace from the enemy. <coughs> and God wanted them to find strength for the work. He says, let your hands be strong. And he says it, again, it's in his promises. We, our hands are strong for the work that God calls us to do because of what he promises to do through us. 
Um, last time I taught it, I can't it was a couple weeks ago, when we were in 1 Corinthians. God has promises there. He says, I will never lie to be tempted beyond what you're able. All throughout the Bible, from Old Testament promises to Israel, and a lot of those promises are in the form of covenants that he makes with Adam, with Abraham, with Noah, with Moses. He has all these covenants, all these promises. And he, his, you know, it's very easy for us. And I, again, I'm very stubborn. It's easy for me to turn away sometimes and go, I don't understand how you're going to do that, God. There are times where I, I sin and I go, you know, God, I, I didn't walk away from the temptation to sin that time. And I get frustrated. And then I have to turn back again to God and say, you know what? I stand up again. I got to let my hands be strong for what God has called me to do. Am I going to struggle? Yes. Are we all going to struggle? Yes. But our hands are strong to do the work no matter how hard it is because he keeps his promises. He fulfills all of them. (coughs) Verses 11 through 13. Thank you, sir. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of the people. Now again, remember the crop failure they'd experienced (coughs) and the blight because of their disobedience. God's promising them, look, it's going to turn around. Verse 13 Just as you, Judah, and Israel have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you. And you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Their hands were strong to be strong because, again, God's promises. And again, God always fulfills his promises. Numbers 25, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not said and will it not come to pass? Everything God says will come to pass. <clears throat> Verses 14 through 17. This is what the Lord Almighty says. That phrase again. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed you no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty. So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. Do not swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. (coughs) These are reiterated frequently. And a lot of times it's just these that are reiterated. You can see them mentioned in chapter 7 of this book. Uh, They're mentioned in Micah. Paul reiterates, speak the truth to one another in Ephesians chapter 4. And if you are doing verse 16, it will be very difficult to do verse 17. So if you are speaking the truth to each other and rendering a true and sound judgment then you're not going to be plotting evil 
and you're not going to be lying or swearing falsely. (coughs) Verse 18 and 19. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful, glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Now this, I think this is very awesome. I'll tell you why. When they fasted, fasting was a time of mourning a lot of times for them. And they were fasting because of the four things that had happened. It was the destruction of the the temple, the destruction uh, when the Babylonians broke into the wall, when Gedaliah was assassinated. They had all these things they were fasting for. And again, all these things happened because of their sin. They were results of the sin. So every time they fasted, they were reminded of their failure, the sin that they had committed. (coughs) But what God is saying is, you know what, in the future, you're not going to think of that anymore. These fasts, these that happen, they're not going to be sad occasions. We're going to make them feasts, not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done, because of the grace that I've given you. So these fasts will be feasts instead, and they will be in celebration of God's grace toward them. I I find that very awesome because, you know, very often we are often reminded of our sin. And, you know, we should be reminded to a certain degree where we came from. Uh, I posted something on Facebook recently. It said, what did it say? If sin be not bitter... Christ will not be sweet. You need to remember where you came from. Then you remember how sweet it is that Christ saved you from, from your sin. <coughs> Verse 20 to 22. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and entreat him. Verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. So it's no longer going to be a byword anymore. Even today, with the Jewish nation and, and everything that the Jews accomplish, <coughs> anti-Semitism is very prevalent. And there's still a byword to some extent. But there's going to be a day in the future. It's going to be a day in the millennium when Jesus reigns, where the nations are going to come together and go, okay, now we want to know. We need to know. And they're going to grab the Jews. And this is what the Jews' purpose was. In Genesis 12, when he's talking to Abraham, God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you. And all the peoples on the earth will be best blessed through you. Deuteronomy 28 says, 
The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. That was their purpose. Now, they did fail their purpose. (coughs) But again, they're going to repent and those fasts are going to be feasts of celebration. And the world is going to see who God is through the Jews. Chapter 9. It's next. Verses 1 through 4. Let me get a drink real quick. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 4. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. (coughs) So chapters 9 through 14 are two prophecies from Zechariah. And uh, they are undated. However, most scholars believe they're toward the end of his life that he received these, these visions. Now, it says against the land of Hadrach. Hadrach, and I had to look it up because I'd never heard of it before or where it was. Hadrach does not exist anymore. It was a part of Syria. It was near Damascus, but its location is unclear. Its prophecy was essentially that it would be destroyed and wiped from the earth. And that has been fulfilled. It is not here anymore. Uh, The prophecy of the destruction was actually fulfilled by the armies of Alexander the Great when he conquered that region. Now, the cities mentioned in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, they actually follow Alexander the Great's march through that region up until he reaches Jerusalem. And this is 332 or 331 B.C. (coughs) Now, it mentions Tyre and Sidon, and these were always two major cities north of Israel in the land of Lebanon. Tyre was important because it was a commercial city and it was also thought of as impossible to conquer. What would normally happen is there was a city on the land and then there was an island just offshore. So what would happen is when they would get attacked or sieged, everybody from the city would go to the island and they were basically impenetrable. Nobody could conquer them. But what happened was the Assyrians actually tried to lay siege to Tyre, and they did so for five years, and they never conquered the city. They were never able to get to it. Nebuchadnezzar, he tried for 13 years to conquer Tyre, and he failed. Alexander the Great, he did it in seven months. How did he do it? It's considered one of the greatest military feats in ancient history, actually. What he did is he conquered the city that was on the shore, completely demolished it, and they act, he, he so thoroughly demolished it that archaeologists had a hard time finding what was left of it. They had to dig so deep. He demolished it and used the rubble from the city to create a causeway to the island. So he took everything that was destroyed, kept heaping it into the sea to create a walkway to the island, and he conquered the city. That's pretty clever. I'm not sure I'd have thought of that. But... Um, again, 
God fulfilling prophecy or God showing what's going to happen in the future. (coughs) God again showing Israel. Remember those craftsmen. I've got everything under control. This is what's going to happen. You can watch. Now they were to look towards the future of what was going to happen. We look back and go, wow, look what God did. He did everything. And we can see everything that he did. And so we can know, we can look forward to everything that he still has to accomplish. Now verses 5 through (coughs) 8 is after the events of Tyre. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will rise, writhe in agony. And Ekron too. For her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, their forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah and Ekron. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. (coughs) I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. The Philistine cities of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod are south of Tyre and Sidon, and they were conquered in that same year. And this passage basically foretells the conquering of the entire coast. Now it says, and this is interesting, he who remains, and speaking of Ekron, will be like a Jebusite. The Jebusites were Canaanites. When Israel conquered the promised land, the city they could not conquer originally was Jerusalem. The Jebusites kept a stronghold there. Jerusalem was on top of a hill. Sorry. Top of a hill. But they weren't conquered till David went up there, King David, and he wiped, he conquered Jerusalem, and then he made the Jebusites basically forced slaves. But eventually, the Jebusites simply became incorporated into the people of Judah. They don't exist anymore. They actually became part of the tribe. And what he's saying here is, the little amount of people that are left in Ekron, they're essentially going to be absorbed into Israel. They're going to be just like the Jebusites. (coughs) Now it says next, but I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding, marauding forces. So, (coughs) Alexander, he marches through Lebanon. He's approaching the promised land. He did not conquer or attack Jerusalem. Now, God had promised here to protect his house during this time, and he did it in an amazing chain of events, actually. And you can actually read about it in Josephus in Antiquities 11, if you're ever interested. It's actually longer than what I'm going to tell you. What happened was, The Jews saw the Greeks coming. They knew they were coming. The high priest, whose name was Jadua, knew they were coming. So he told the people, we need to pray, we need to make supplication to God, and we need to offer God sacrifices because we need to know what we need to do. (coughs) So after they had done that, Jadua has a dream. And God gives him instruction on what to do, which is to go out and greet Alexander the Great, in front of the city, the, the doors open to the, the walls open, the gates to the walls open, 
with a procession of people. So they go out in procession as Alexander approaches with the priests, a multitude of citizens are with them. They're being very venerable to him. They're showing him honor. Now what normally happens with Alexander and the people is once the city capitulates, those with Alexander get to go and conquer the city and take what they want and take out the spoil. Alexander says, no, you're not going to do that. So his second in command comes up and says, okay, why can't we do this? And he said, because I had a dream back in Macedonia and these people coming out is what I saw in my dream. I don't fear these people. He says, it's the God they serve that showed me I'm supposed to leave them alone. And that's my vernacular. That's essentially what happened. So the priest has a dream. Alexander has a dream many months before that, that this is where he's going to go. <coughs> so what happens is they invite him in with a, a large procession. They give him honor. Uh, the priest offers sacrifices for Alexander in the temple. And then they show him the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there's a prophecy, and I believe it's in 10 and 11. No, it's, I'm sorry, it's 10. And it shows that the Greeks are going to conquer the Persians. And it mentions someone specifically, and I forget how it mentions him. But Alexander goes, oh, that's me. He sees himself in the prophecy. And he basically says to the Jews, you have autonomy. You can do what you want here. He leaves them alone and he says, if some of you decide to join my army, you are freely to practice your religion however you want. Just join my army. So he gives them a great deal of freedom. Now, once he died and his generals took over, that, that went away. And you actually see that in chapter 11 of Daniel. But he saw the prophecy of God and he went, oh, well, I'm fulfilling the creator of the earth's prophecy. So he left them alone. And this is God again fulfilling uh, prophecy in Zechariah. <coughs> I, I love historical stuff like that, how God works everything in. At, it's very awesome. Verse 9. <coughs> Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt and the foal of a donkey. The chapter diverges here to talk about the Messiah. So first he's talking about the conquering Greeks in the first, first, first eight chapters. Talks about what their king is going to do. <coughs> and then he shows them a division. He says, look, this is what their king is going to do. And trust me, Alexander did not ride on a donkey. He says, look, that was their king. This is how you're going to know your king is coming. Riding on a donkey. And we see that fulfilled in Matthew, chapter 21. <coughs> now, anybody outside of Jewish culture, when they had a triumphal entry of their leader or a general, they would come in in great procession, great pomp, horses, chariots, they had all these things. In fact, when Rome, Roman generals came back to Rome to celebrate their victories and they'd ride along in their chariots, they'd have such loud cheering. They had a man in the chariot with him 
telling the Roman general in his ear, you are just a man. Because they wanted to make sure they didn't get themselves lifted up so much, they did something stupid, essentially. But that's how Romans would enter. You see how Alexander entered. But the Jewish king was going to be different when he came. And he wanted them to recognize, look. And again, this is one of the reasons the Jews should have noticed. They were looking for someone to take over the Romans. Jesus said, that's not how I'm coming. So I'm coming lowly and riding on a donkey. (coughs) Verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9.9 describes the first coming of Jesus. However, 9.10 describes the second. And this is one of those things in scripture where the Jews missed that there were two comings because a lot of times the prophecies of his comings are merged and you can't tell until after the fact. (coughs) So Zechariah 9.10 belongs to Christ's second coming when he rules and reigns in authority on the earth. Now it says his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Again, it's not going to be the Messiah just reigning in Israel. His, his reign is going to be throughout the entire earth. And it's not just him reigning. Those faithful <coughs> Jews and Gentiles will be reigning with him. Now, I don't know how we're going to do that. But again, this is, this is, again, one of those promises of God. He says, look, this is what's going to happen. And I like reading about uh, the millennium. I like reading uh, Isaiah 11 when it talks about, you know, the child will sit by the hole of the viper and all these things. And, and I, I sit and I imagine and wonder, for lack of a better term, about what that's going to be like. I really enjoy reading it because... Honestly, remember where it says, strengthen your hands and his promises. I look at that and I go, okay, well, that's what's going to happen. You know, let me strengthen myself with the spirit, obviously, and stand up and do what God wants me to do. I want to be faithful. I want to be the faithful servant because God has things for us. He has things for the faithful. Moving on. (laughs) Verse 11 and verse 12. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Because God's faithful promises... Even prisoners are going to have hope. And these are prisoners, like he says here, a waterless pit. This is a cistern. There's going to be people trapped in a dry cistern, essentially. What, it's a, a picture of his people. Uh, basically, spiritually dry, but he's going to free them, and they're going to be alive again. And they're supposed to receive, again, encouragement. Again, you know, when I was studying for this, 
every single thing they were to receive encouragement from. When you read through scripture, you're going to read things and you go, well, that's not very encouraging. Well, you look at it again from our perspective. There's two perspectives always. There's mine and there's God's. And then you always have to remember when you're reading, are you looking at it from yours or are you looking at it from God's perspective? God's perspective, there's always a purpose. If God's got a purpose, God's got a plan. If God's got a plan, I need to get on board with that. And if I'm on board with that, I'm going to be blessed and I'm going to honestly have peace. I posted something else on, I post a lot on Facebook. I posted something else on Facebook. It said, and I'm, I'm going to mutilate this one. It said, only those, I'm really going to mutilate it. Only those who are in tune with God's plan are going to have peace with God. You can be a Christian and you can do your own thing. You may have peace about your salvation, but the rest of your life, life could be a wreck because you're not getting in tune with what he has for you to do. My wife and I, uh, it's, it's very hard to live in Southern California, um, especially when you have a lot of kids. And so we're praying, Lord, what do you want us to do? Are we supposed to stay here? Because we love this church. This is our family. We don't want to leave it. But you really have to provide for us to stay here because we can't stay here. And so my wife and I have been praying. And by all means, keep us in prayer. Uh, forgot to provide or show us what we're to do here uh, because we've actually been praying about moving. Again, that's a, a last resort. I was texting my wife this morning and she wanted to know if I was really serious about moving out of state. And I said, I am, but I'm only serious about it, but that's where God's directing us. I said, I want to be able to follow the convictions God has given us without having to work. You know, I already work a long time when I'm at work. I don't want to have to get a second job or have to do other things because God has given us the conviction to uh, homeschool our family, uh, to spend time together and to try to disciple them in the word <coughs> and also to have ministry here. And we want to do all those things, but we're at, we're, we're constantly public going, Lord, what are we supposed to do? We want to make sure that we're in tune with your will. So, but anyway, Israel, giving them hope, giving them promises. My wife and I are, again, we just talked about it this morning, trusting in God's promises for what he has for us. Israel needs to do the same thing. Now it says in verse 13, I don't know if I read verse 13, I'll read it again. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a war warrior's sword. This is actually a reference to what happens after Alexander when he dies and the, his kingdom is split up four ways. This mention, mentioned here is partially fulfilled in the days of the Maccabees, when the Maccabee the Maccabean revolt happened and they revolted against uh, uh, Anti Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, nevertheless, it seems the ultimate fulfillment is uh, yet to come, but it was partially fulfilled in that time. Now, verses 14 through 17, the end of the chapter, 
Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day. As a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. <coughs> this is, again, one of those millennial pictures, one of those things that encourages hope. Now, I'm going to encourage you when you go home today. Look up some of the pictures of the millennium. You can look at Isaiah chapter 11, but there's, there's a lot of them. But if you string them all together and you see what God has promised for his people, it is an amazing thing. Unfortunately, if we don't, if we are not as faithful as we are supposed to be, we don't always get all the rewards he has for us. It says in Corinthians 3 that all the works that we've done are going to be placed on an altar and burned. And whatever's left, that's our reward. Now, I don't think it's silver or gold. I think it's personally, I think it's responsibility in the millennial kingdom. I know that some of my works burned on the altar are not going to come out favorably. And I know some of them will. But to find strength to do those works through the power of the Spirit, we need to make sure we keep our eyes on the promises of God, everything he does have for us. And again, you know, when you're doing your devotions, no matter what book you're in, every time you see a promise, write it down. Now, they have a book called God's Promise Book, and I think that's really good, but I think it's even more effective when you're reading it yourself in devotions in the Word and you write it down yourself because then you're like, oh, that's a promise. And then you can take that even more and apply it to yourself personally. <coughs> I'm going to end there for time's sake and my voice. And let's close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for all of your promises. Lord, may we never forsake them. May we never take our eyes off them. We find strength to do your will through your promises, through hope in you. Lord, we take strength in the faithfulness of your word as well. It is accurate in every way. We can see the things you've fulfilled. We can take heart to stand in front of those who are naysayers and say, no, my word is ac God's word is accurate. God's word is truth. And Lord, as we go out this week, may we be great dispensers of your truth. May we be diligent to present ourselves approved to you so that we may continue to show and tell others about the hope that lies within us. In Jesus' name, amen.